Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. This is your co-host, Shahnaz Haqqani. In today's new episode, we speak with Sean Roberts about his brand new book, The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority, published with Princeton in 2020. Roberts is the director of the International Development Studies Program at George Washington University. He received his PhD in cultural anthropology from the University of Southern California and has been studying the Uyghurs, a Muslim ethnic minority, for some 30 years, including for his master's and PhD thesis research. In this book, Roberts argues that China's violent campaign against the Uyghur Muslim population is linked to the broader U.S.-led global war on terror, showing that China appropriates the message of the, and the language of the war on terror as justification for persecuting this ethnic minority. Roberts provides a detailed historical account of the current crisis, of China's settler colonialism in the Uyghur homeland, and of the ways that China relies heavily on the war on terror, on the U.S.-led global war on terror, to imagine Uyghurs as its enemy. In today's discussion, Roberts addresses questions about who the Uyghurs are and what their relationship with China has been like historically, how China's systematic campaign to erase Uyghur identity and culture is linked to the global war on terror, the idea of self-fulfilling prophecies and how it contextualizes Uyghur responses to China's violent policies, some suggestions for responding to this human tragedy, and his own experiences meeting and talking with Uyghurs and doing this research. The book will appeal to anyone interested in the discourse on the war on terror and terrorism, Uh, Islam and Muslims in China, Genocide Studies, Chinese Studies, History, and generally anyone who wants to better understand what's happening with the Uyghurs. Here's my interview with Sean Roberts. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for willing to join me today to talk about your fantastic book, The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority. I really enjoyed reading the book. I was brand new to this. This is not my area of expertise by any means, but I was interested in it intellectually. And otherwise, I wanted to learn what was happening um, and also see what I could do about it as a person, as an individual, as a scholar. Uh, So thank you for joining me today and also for writing this fantastic book. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. So we like to begin this podcast. uh, We have a tradition here to begin the podcast with uh, uh, by asking our guests if they could tell us about their intellectual journey, how they got to their chosen field, what brought them here. So could you please tell us about your intellectual journey? Sure. Um, you know, I, I started in college back in the 1980s being interested in communism and Marxism. And I went to Yugoslavia in 1987 as an exchange student and found out that people in Yugoslavia weren't interested in communism or Marxism anymore. Uh, But I discovered um, nationalism and Islam 
at that time uh, as being critical issues in Yugoslavia. And this was before the war, of course. Um, and when I returned to college, I decided to start studying the Muslim people of the Soviet Union. Um, I was able to go to Uzbekistan, then the Uzbek Soviet Socialist Republic, in 1989-90, and discovered that most of that which had been written about the Muslims of the Soviet Union was largely off uh, base. Uh, it had mostly talked about the Muslims of the Soviet Union uh, having a rising nationalism that was targeted against the Soviet state, that there was uh, significant tensions between Russians and Muslim nationalities in the Soviet Union. And I found that generally not to be true. Uh, you know, there were certain tensions, but uh, no more than racial or ethnic tensions in the U.S. and probably a lot less to some degree. Um, but then I went during my winter break uh, across to China, and there I found that the Uyghur people, who are very closely related to the Uzbek people, uh, both linguistically and culturally, that they had serious issues with um, Chinese rule. Uh, and that so from that point onward, in the early 1990, I decided that I would study Uyghurs. Wow. Um, and tell us about this book in particular. What inspired it? And I know you've been working on this for 25 years, is it? Um, so how did how did this book come about? Sure. Well, yeah, this um, the book initially was going to be a critical examination of um, the question of whether China faced a terrorist threat from among its Uyghur population, um, which is something I've been looking at for quite some time. And I started doing research in 2016 on this issue um, and started kind of formulating the focus of my book. But then events uh, really overtook uh, the project, um, and I really had to address what has happened since 2017. Um, and it kind of organically came together that the two questions, uh, the one I was originally looking at, the uh, salience of uh, the idea that there was a Uyghur terrorist threat and what had happened since 2017 uh, were quite interrelated. And so uh, as a result, kind of the form of the book changed, but um, uh, a lot of the research I had already done uh, was appropriate to um, the new form of the book. Yeah, I'm. I'm really interested in your methodology uh, because there's, you know, you, you you occasionally talk about ethnographic research, having spoken, having interviewed um, Uyghurs. I'm pronouncing it as Uyghurs. Is it? Is how do you pronounce it? Uyghur. Uyghur. Okay. Um, so it's a, so it's a really. I mean, it's it, the historical account is incredibly helpful in situating what's happening and contextualizing what's happening. Um, so we'll come back to the question of uh, especially the ethnographic accounts. I would love to hear some more about your experiences in, um, you know, finding people to interview and your visits to these places and these communities. That will be fantastic. Um, can you give, and I don't imagine a lot of our readers to be necessarily very familiar with what's happening. So could you uh, give, us, give us a rough idea, a very general idea of who the Uyghurs are? 
um, where they're located, um, maybe some key actors in the in the story of of their, of their current history. Sure. Um, well, first of all, the Uyghurs are a Turkic people. Their their language is um, uh, from the Turkish lang- uh, language family. Uh, the language is pretty much mutually intelligible with Uzbek, um, less so with Turkish, but you can certainly find the commonalities. Um, they number about 11 million uh, in the area of Northwest China that they consider their homeland. Uh, that is officially called the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region of the People's Republic of China. Um, However, they've always had a very tenuous relationship with modern Chinese states. And I talk about this in my first chapter, which is kind of a historical overview of that relationship up to 2000. um, The Qing Dynasty initially initially, uh, uh, conquered this region in the mid-18th century. And um, from that point onward, it had uh, it, it kind of maintained the region more as a frontier buffer zone. Uh, in the late 19th century, uh, it tried to integrate the region more into uh, the Chinese Empire as um, an actual uh, province. And um, that was the first time you really saw a significant attempt to assimilate Uyghurs uh, to Chinese culture, to Han culture. Um, During the nationalist period of Chinese rule, the area remained very uh, tenuously connected to the Chinese state. Um, It was basically run by local uh, Han administrators who themselves didn't really have close contacts with the central government. And in fact, at one point, uh, the administrator in the region in the 1930s was actually probably closer tied to the Soviet Communist Party and Moscow than he was to uh, the Chinese nationalist government in Nanjing. So uh, it's only in 1949 when the, the communist revolution happens in China that there's more of an attempt to integrate this into a modern, this region that the Uyghurs consider their homeland into uh, a modern Chinese state. And um, I argue in my book that for the first three decades, uh, the Chinese Communist Party was only able to do that partially. Um, And that was in part due to a lack of capacity. This was still a far-flung region. Uh, Also, during that period, uh, China kind of positioned itself as an isolationist state. It was looking at this region as important to keeping out possible threats from from the West and Southwest. Um, And um, also, there was, you know, a lot of chaos happening with the Cultural Revolution and before that, the Great Leap Forward. And as a result, you don't really see the region significantly integrated into the People's Republic of China until the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, prior to that, there was a significant demographic shift. 
the Chinese government sent uh, a lot of Han to settle the region, but they mostly settled in the north of the region, which had transportation links to China proper. And the south of the region remained significantly Uyghur in character and overwhelmingly Uyghur demographically. And so a lot of, uh, you know, my research kind of starts at that point in the 1990s, and there was um, tension between uh, Uyghurs and the Chinese state. Initially in the 80s, the Chinese state um, instituted a lot of reforms. They allowed for kind of a cultural renaissance in the Uyghur region. There was a lot of Uyghur publications coming out. They allowed Uyghurs to open up mosques. Um, They allowed Uyghurs to establish religious practice again. Um, And then that started to erode by the end of the 1980s, you know, and and that in part is a story of China's change um, after the Tiananmen Square uh, incident in 1989, you started to see uh, the Chinese government be less open to um, reforms that had anything to do with allowing citizens more voice or anything to do with kind of a democratization or a diversification, let's say. Um, and also with the fall of the Soviet Union, Uyghurs started looking across the border and saying, well, gee, there is um, an independent Kazakhstan now, there's an independent Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and so on. Why is there not an independent Uyghur state? And uh, might, might the People's Republic of China fall apart just like the Soviet Union? And at the same time, the Chinese government uh, was looking at that same issue and was increasingly concerned about um, its different ethnic minority areas, including uh, both the, um, uh, the Uyghur region, the Tibetan region, and even the Mongolian region. So uh, you started to have campaigns against uh, I, uh, any, any expressions of Uyghur self-determination, uh, and that was characterized as separatism. Uh, and then I think that really the, the, the thing that really changed the relationship was after 9-11 in the declaration of the war on terror, uh, the Chinese government started to shift its interpretation of Uyghur disloyalty from separatism to terrorism. Uh, and that really allowed uh, the Chinese government to increase its um, repression in the region with impunity from the international community because the international community um, uh, essentially endorsed the idea of uh, suspending human rights um, when it came to fighting terrorism. Oh, that's excellent, actually, because my next question is precisely about this idea of the global war on terror and its connection with the Uyghur situation. So you make an important and I think a very convincing argument in this book connecting this crisis to two important issues or phenomena. So one is the larger global war, global war on terror and the other is settler colonialism. Now, I don't imagine that a lot of people are familiar. I hadn't thought of this this way at all, but then again, I'm so new to this conversation. Um, so I was wondering if you, and, and, and the book does this really excellently. So I was wondering if you could describe briefly for us this relationship to our listeners. So 
we can do this in, in a set of two questions. First, we can talk about the global war on terror and what it, ha- and, and what it has to do with what's happening in China at all. Um, and then, or, or what the Republic of China is doing to the Uyghurs. And then the second question I'll, I'll, ask, I'll, ask, I'll ask it after, but uh, we can talk about the, the, how this is a form of settler colonialism. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think um, essentially, you know, I make the argument, um, not to preempt your second question, but I make the argument throughout the book that uh, what the Chinese state is most interested in in terms of the Uyghur region and the Uyghur people relates to um, settler colonization of the region, um, the Uyghur's homeland, essentially. Um, But um, as I mentioned, you know, in the 1990s, the Chinese government framed um, any, uh, framed any suppression of Uyghur political voices as um, being a campaign against separatism and promoting the idea of the unity of the Chinese state. Um, after 2001, this, this really began to, it, it changed almost on a dime. It changed very quickly. Uh, the, the Chinese government immediately after 9-11 started a campaign pushing to have the international community recognize uh the Uyghurs as a significant terrorist threat in the context of the global war on terror. And um, in doing so, I I, I describe this in a whole chapter in the book. Um, You know, they initially, the Chinese government uh, tries to portray all Uyghur political actors around the world as being linked to Al-Qaeda and um, international Islamic terrorism. And, and this is really a laughable uh, accusation because so many of the groups they mention in, in some of these documents are um, very much secular political organizations, um, and they're mostly in the in located in the West, in Germany, in Europe, and in, in the U.S. that have been fighting for some time for um, Uyghur human rights and. Um, However, they do mention in their documents one group in Afghanistan that when when they first um, brought up this group, uh, I don't think any uh, researchers outside of China or probably even inside China had ever heard of this group. Uh, it, it was called the uh, Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement. And Initially, uh, Western states pushed back on the idea that this group should be recognized as a terrorist organization, but uh, gradually the U.S. um, changed its policy and essentially uh, recognized this group as as a terrorist organization and helped the Chinese government get it uh, listed on the U.N. Security Council's consolidated list of uh, terrorist groups. And um, there's not really a smoking gun for the reason in this uh, change in policy in the U.S., but most observers at the time, uh, and I'm quite convinced of this myself, feel that it was more or less a quid pro quo uh, decision by the U.S. to get China's acquiescence uh, in the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Um, uh, so the U.S. was already in the summer of 2002 
starting to think about how uh, it would link Iraq to the global war on terror. And uh, one of the big hurdles it faced was uh, the the UN Security Council and making sure that China would not, uh, but I think both China and Russia would not oppose the U.S. Uh, invading Iraq. And um, so it, this, in some ways, um, I think changed a lot for Uyghurs around the world. Um, this group, uh, which I've done research on. Um, barely existed as an organization. Um, I, I found very little uh, evidence that it had any connections to Al-Qaeda or the Taliban, as the Chinese state asserted. In fact, um, my, my research suggested that the Taliban um, ensured that this group was inactive and could not pose a threat to China. Uh, which was something uh, that they guaranteed the Chinese diplomats at the time uh, in exchange for um, increased relations with the Chinese state. So um, despite that, uh, despite the group almost being non-existent and certainly being inconsequential uh, both to, to China and the world, um, it, it set in, a, in motion a whole series of things that have affected Uyghurs ever since. Many um, Uyghur human rights activists in the West uh, were put on terrorist lists uh, and, and given um, Interpol red notices as a result of this um, because the Chinese state said, well, these people are connected to ETIM. And even though that there was no evidence of them being connected to ETIM, uh, as you're probably well aware, uh, after 9-11, people who got put on lists like this suffered consequences for many years and could not get themselves off the list, regardless of um, whether uh, it was legitimate or not that they were put on a list. Um, and in addition, it created a situation where the Chinese state could claim that there was potentially a terrorist threat inside the Uyghur population, which is something I, I think certainly did not exist uh, at the time and uh, almost never has existed. Um, and as a result, they were able to um, attack the, the Uyghur population as a whole. Um, you know, they're able to kind of racially and ethnically profile Uyghurs as potentially dangerous, uh, put, put Uyghurs under increased surveillance and scrutiny. Um, and this led to, I, I think, a, an escalation of aggressive policies against Uyghurs throughout the 2000s um, that eventually created more and more conflict going forward. And today, as um, the Chinese state has is essentially uh, implementing what I, I suggest is cultural genocide against the Uyghurs. There, once again, the Chinese state is justifying this as a counterterrorism measure. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that, that's exactly that's the my next question is going to be. Oh, do you want to talk about the settler colonialism as well? Sure. I mean, I I um I think that one one point that is critical, you know, it, it, 
for a long time, uh, scholarship has been reticent to talk about any kind of colonialism other than European colonialism. I think that has um, changed over the last, you know, decade plus. Um, there's a recognition that colonialism uh, has been a feature of history uh, constantly, and um, it has not only been uh, something perpetrated by Western states, by European states, it's also been perpetrated by Asian states, um, by states throughout the world uh, at different time periods. And I think it's important to view um, the Uyghur situation um, and its connection and its relationship with the ch modern Chinese states as a colonial relationship. As I mentioned earlier, the Chinese state, well, the, the Qing dynasty, the precursor to um, modern Chinese states, uh, conquered this region, essentially occupied it. Um, and increasingly, there's been an attempt, particularly since the late 19th century, to settle the region with uh, Han settlers and to really make this an integral part of um, modern China uh, and almost a generic part of modern China where, where Uyghur characteristics are not so pronounced. Um, and, you know, this, this is something we've seen historically um, in all over the world where where states uh, seek to usurp territory and push out the indigenous population, uh, usually displacing the population, breaking down its uh, identity, and um, in some cases, quarantining them. You know, I mean, you could look at the, uh, the story of the Native Americans, uh, particularly in the West, as, as the United States expanded. Uh, also, the story of indigenous people in Latin America, um, but also, you know, people in Siberia uh, and and people in Western China um, who've been uh, overwhelmed by uh, invading states that have wanted to settle the land. And I, I you know, I, I think one of the interesting characteristics of settler colonialism versus other forms of colonialism is the population that is in the region becomes unimportant and actually becomes a barrier to um, the state's goals of settling the region. Other forms of colonialism, uh, they, they prefer to, states prefer to exploit the indigenous population because the states aren't seeking to uh, essentially take over that territory indefinitely. Um, so I think that's really part of why you see what's happening now to the Uyghurs in, in their homeland uh, is very much about the Chinese government trying to remove this population as a barrier to the state's greater goal of, of integrating this region, colonizing it, and making, a gener making it a generic part of a modern China. And what are some specific um, strategies that the Chinese government is implementing, um, some assimilation strategies uh, to achieve this goal of, you know, integrating the Uyghur land or Uyghur communities into larger China? Well, it, you know, it's, it's very, uh, the, the policies are, are very extreme. 
um, and they're not unprecedented in history. We've seen them before, um, but they're certainly unprecedented in the 21st century, and they and they benefit from uh, the technologies of the 21st century. So we really started to we we started to see already in 2016, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that as the Chinese government was starting to target all Uyghurs as a potential threat, uh, the government implemented uh, technological surveillance using artificial intelligence, using um, video tracking, all kinds of of new technologies for surveilling uh, and scrutinizing um, the Uyghur population. And then... In 2017, we started to realize that the state had built large internment camps all over the Uyghur region and was essentially um, arbitrarily interning large swaths of the Uyghur population in these camps. Uh, now, inside these camps, uh, the government, well, the Chinese government initially suggested that they were not building camps and they had not interned. Uh, Uyghurs arbitrarily, but soon um, the state stepped back from that argument because there was just too much evidence. Um, lots of people were able to point to satellite imagery. Um, the Chinese state itself had put out public procurements to build these these mass internment camps, and so uh, then the, once once uh, the People's Republic of China realized that it could not. Um, deny the the existence of these camps. They suggested that they were uh, vocational training centers, um, and that uh, is certainly not very accurate in the sense of uh, what we would consider a vocational uh, educational institution. Uh, these were essentially prison-like structures, and they did um, incorporate a lot of. Uh, education per se, but really um, uh, forced um, propaganda consumption by those who were in turn. So uh, a, a significant part of the day was spent on forcing Uyghurs to study the Chinese language. Um, those who were in turn were not allowed to speak their own language. Um, uh, they were constantly surveilled to make sure that they complied with all these regulations. And then uh, usually the second half of the day would be dedicated to um, uh, consuming propaganda items about the Chinese state, and in particular about Xi Jinping thought and um, the ideology of the Chinese government. Um, and in a large degree, that was also about um, disavowing Islam, disavowing um, any sense of Uyghur identity, <coughs> excuse me, and um, also uh, 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 disavowing any idea of a of a Uyghur um, of Uyghur self determination in their homeland. Uh, so it's very much about um, uh, a discourse of anti-extremism where the Chinese government uh, essentially portrayed any kind of uh, religious observation 
not uh, supported by the state to be extremist. Um, and, and the arbitrariness of the detention was also really important. Uh, evidence came to light early on that the Chinese government had given quotas to local uh, governments to intern a certain percentage of the population, which meant that they um, would uh, determine what was extremist behavior uh, by the percentage they had to intern. And this led to, uh, you know, almost comical excuses for why people were interned. Um, you know, they had a Quran at home. Uh, they had been to mosque uh, two years prior. They had traveled to another country, um, particularly a Muslim country. Um, they had um, communicated on social media something that was critical of the state and so on. So um, that, that internment system and the surveillance system has served as uh, what I would call the, the centerpiece of a complex of policies that have focused on destroying Uyghur identity and stripping the Uyghur homeland of any um, uh, signs of Uyghur identity. So, um, you know, under the threat constant threat of internment and constant surveillance, uh, Uyghurs cannot resist any of the measures the state is taking to promote interethnic marriage, uh, to, to promote um, residential labor programs, which is taking uh, Uyghurs out of their uh, native villages and putting them in residential factory uh, um, sites. Um, forced um, uh, residential schools, which is something that, you know, is, is a hallmark of settler colonialism. Uh, you know, we saw it definitely in the Americas, where Native Americans were forced to send their children to res residential schools where they were brought up um, speaking English and, um, you know, learning either the American or Canadian uh, idea of a civic culture. Um, so, uh, I think that all of these policies have been, have been, they started in 2017, but they continue and they continue to break down any sense of Uyghur social capital and also, um, have, have served to displace a significant portion of the Uyghur population from their native towns and allowed the Chinese government to go in and, uh, resettle those areas and, uh, and also, uh, develop them through new construction that um, uh, doesn't have any of the hallmarks of Uyghur culture connected to it. You know, one thing that I found so striking is that, as you tell us in the book, many of the people who work in these camps are Uyghurs themselves, or they're from other indigenous Muslim groups. How does this work? Um, yeah, I think that, you know, it to go back to... Uh, um, this notion of, of a, a complex of policies at the center of which is this mass internment center uh, system, I think that just creates um, a sense of complete fear um, that, you know, makes, makes the entire Uyghur population um, either compliant or um, interned or incarcerated, right? So, 
I think that um, for many of the people who work in these camps, and there there have been many who have uh, since found ways to flee China and have talked about their experiences and were very critical of what was happening in the camps. Um, you know, they 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 view working in in the camp as um, one of the only ways to avoid uh, being interned in the camp. You know, and, and this is also, I think, a, a very um, typical um, phenomenon in uh, settler colonial situations. You know, we've seen throughout history where uh, colonial powers have to, uh, they have to essentially harness the power of the local population to repress the local population. Um but it, it uh, I, you know, I think that one of the unfortunate uh, holes, black holes of information about what's happening is that it's almost impossible to, um, at this point, talk to anybody inside China who's either working in one of these camps or who has been in one of these camps. And the only uh, environment in which you might be able to do that is on a media tour sponsored by the Chinese government where, where uh, the people you're talking to are um, basically reading from a script. Um, and it's, it's very difficult to get uh, information about what people are actually experiencing on the ground uh, in the Uyghur homeland right now. Um, I found your discussion on discussion of the self-fulfilling prophecies to be very useful in understanding the violent responses in, in defense to um, to China's violent policies against the Uyghurs. Can you tell our audience what a self-fulfilling prophecy is and how it might explain or perhaps contextualize um, the Uyghur responses to what China, what is happening there? Yes. Um, so I, I, I took that concept. Um, from um, Robert Merton, who was a sociologist in the U.S. in the 1940s and 50s, um, and you know, although it's a it's um, a theory from long ago, I think that it 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 is useful in a lot of ways, um, particularly uh, in terms of looking at the Uyghur situation. Merton used this um, this concept as a way to describe how um, how structural racism became self-perpetuating in various contexts. So, you know, he would talk about how racism towards African-Americans in the U.S. led to um, stereotypes that African-Americans weren't interested in education, which translated into less financing for African-Americans' education, which translated into lower levels of education for African-Americans. And it became this kind of cycle. And I think one of the important points that Merton makes is that the power of the self-fulfilling prophecy, which which has its origins almost always in uh, stereotypes and, and racist concepts, um, is that uh, it creates a situation where... Um, the stereotype that you have created for this population uh, essentially begins to look true. And then you can point to it and say, well, this is why we have been doing this all along. 
So in, in terms of the Uyghurs, there's long been stereotypes about Uyghurs being lazy, um, Uyghurs being um, pot- potentially violent, um, you know, hallmarks of racist ideas about um, the other uh, from a, from many colonial situations. Um, and uh, in addition to that, when you when you overlaid the concept of them being a terrorist threat, I think that created a situation uh, where the Chinese government increasingly targeted all Uyghurs as potentially dangerous. Um, and this put a lot of pressure on the, on the population. There was increased policing of the population, increased surveillance and so on. And, um, and this was happening at a time where there was also promoting Han in migration to the region. So in 2009, uh, all of this pressure led to violent ethnic conflicts in the uh, city of Arumchi, which is the capital city of the Uyghur region in China. And um, that only further um, amplified kind of the, the Chinese state. And I think even a lot of the Han public in China, their, their um, perspective on Uyghurs as being a danger, a threat. Um, and the government increasingly cracked down on Uyghurs after the, the, these ethnic riots. Um, and uh, in particular, in, in Uyghur rural communities, um, created something of a of martial law where where Uyghurs were constantly under surveillance and were being harassed by the police, and um, this led to outbursts of violence, you know, which is is not surprising. And um, that violence then further um, further motivated the the violence of the state, uh, and you had this kind of um, self-perpetuating cycle of repression, violent resistance, more repression, more violent resistance. And eventually in 2013, 2014, that led to a couple instances, uh, in the Uyghur region and outside the Uyghur region where, uh, Uyghurs allegedly, um, perpetrated acts of violence that I would consider to be, um, terrorist in character. Um, there's only a handful of them, um, but this these have been hallmarks of the Chinese government's ability to say, look, this is a threat. This happened in 2014. Uh, this was a grave terrorist attack. This proves that Uyghurs are a terrorist threat. Um, so, I, you know, I think that that self-fulfilling prophecy um, of targeting a, a group as, um, as a terrorist threat, um, is inevitably going to lead to that group, um, taking up violent resistance. And, um, then, uh, the, the source of, of, uh, being labeled a terrorist threat points to that violent resistance to say, yes, see, they always have been a, a, a terrorist threat. I want to make sure that I want to make sure that we also spend um, a little time to listen to Uyghur voices on this crisis. Uh, you, you, you address some of this at, at times um, throughout the book. Have you, can you tell us about some of your experiences with the Uyghur population, uh, with individuals you've met, 
uh, maybe folks you've talked to who've escaped these camps or otherwise just managed to successfully leave, at least physically, survive the journey? Yeah, so there's um, one of the things that um, has, one of the things that happened in the Uyghur region as the situation became more um, uh, disruptive um, I would say starting with 2009, is you had a significant number of Uyghurs fleeing China. Some of them legally, some of them illegally. Um, and um, a large, a significant number of them ended up in Turkey. Um, and a lot have also ended up in Europe and in the United States. And then the other thing that happened was um, after 2017, as they started to um, uh, arbitrarily intern Uyghurs inside China, uh, Uyghurs with families, family members abroad told those family members to stop contacting them um, because they thought that would be dangerous because they knew that one of the excuses to to intern somebody was if they were communicating with family members abroad. So um, one of the things that I've, I've noticed, you know, I've, I've been studying Uyghurs for uh, about 30 years and um, uh, I've, I've communicated a lot with um, the, the diaspora communities and, and in particular, some of those who've, been politically active, but after 2017, almost the entire Uyghur diaspora became politically active because even people who, um, whose family members might be in the communist party, but were still being interned in these mass internment camps, um, they started to speak up. Um, and so you, you really have a, a cacophony of Uyghur voices now um, talking about the situation. Um, and there's also been some who have escaped mostly um, via Kazakhstan, and some of them Uyghurs and some of them ethnic Kazakhs. Um, who, and, and all of these people have um, talked to international journalists and give, given their, um, their accounts of what happened in the camps. Um, but uh, one of the things that I guess I found in my research is that the Uyghur people, um, to some degree, they've, they've always been transnationalized. They've always um, had, they've had um, kind of a, a variety of cycles of out-migration, uh, first during the revolution uh, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, you had a lot flee China. You had some flee during the Cultural Revolution. You had a significant number flee to the Soviet Union, um, and in particular Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. Um, and you had some who ended up in Turkey. Um, and and since 2009, as I mentioned, Turkey has become uh, the largest destination for uh, Uyghur refugees, essentially. Um, so I, I, I have when I when I was writing the book, um, I spent a significant amount of time uh, in Turkey speaking to Uyghurs, uh, Uyghurs who'd fled, 
who were able to, to tell me about um, the situation leading up to this major crack crackdown. And I also was able to interview some of the Uyghurs who um, had joined militant groups in Syria um, to find out about uh, the groups there and um, uh, how they've kind of evolved and um, what the people fighting for these groups uh, really think they're doing. Um, so there, there's, uh, I think in, in terms of my own research um, in this book, the discussions with uh, Uyghurs who'd been in Syria is one of the um, uh, particularly new um, uh, items or, or new information that the book is bringing to light um, and how these militant groups in uh, Syria have developed that uh, have significant numbers of Uyghurs connect, uh, connected to them. Occasionally throughout the book, you share some very insightful anecdotes about your experience doing this research or writing about the Uyghurs. I was wondering if you might be open to sharing some of these experiences here with us, uh, with our audience, because I think that they speak to the various kinds of consequences of doing research on doing research in which you complicate or challenge dominant narratives, um, such as what I think is Chinese propaganda against Uyghurs and or, you know, China's idea of the people's war on terror. Mm -hmm. Um, So could you, if you're open to it, I would love to hear more about some of your experiences, um, the ways in which the average Chinese person or netizens, I guess, in the case when you write articles online and Chinese people respond to them, um, any anecdotes you you can share with us in doing this research? Sure. I mean, one that I talk about in the book is, um, was in 2013, um, when the the first act of violence that looked something like uh, a terrorist act um, carried out by a Uyghur in China uh, occurred. And, and this was a family of Uyghurs that drove a SUV into Tiananmen Square. And um, there was very little damage done in, uh, in, in this act. And it, it remains unclear what what the people were trying to accomplish. Um, but uh, that said, it, it created a, a lot of um, anxiety inside China because this, this happened in Beijing at, the, the, at Tiananmen Square, which is kind of the symbol, um, symbolic place of the power of the Chinese state. Um, and uh, it looked more like... Um, a terrorist act that uh, had been in the news, say in Europe, um, where you'd have uh, people drive a truck through um, a public gathering or something. And um, CNN.com um, asked me to write an opinion piece about it. And in the opinion piece, I, you know, I noted that um, it was very difficult to know uh, what what the people were trying to accomplish in this, um, but that it, it made less sense to look at it as an organized premeditated terrorist attack um, with any sort of organization behind it. Um, and much, much more useful to look at it in terms of um, uh, basically an out, um, an outburst of outrage um, and, given given what 
given the tensions that Uyghurs were under at the time in their homeland, you could see why uh, somebody might do something like this, even somewhat spontaneously. Um, that created uh, a significant uproar on the internet. I, I got personally a lot of death threats from um, Chinese netizens, both inside China and outside China. And um, there was a campaign inside China to actually uh, uh, kick CNN out of the country um, because the Chinese government blamed CNN for um, my opinion piece. Um, so, I mean, that, that was, that was a, a very uncomfortable moment, I would say, you know, because it, it also crossed this, um, this line about um, being critical of any accusations of terrorism. Um, and I think that since 9-11, um, people have, all, people, at least in the United States, um, but I think elsewhere in the world too, have felt very uh, reticent to um, question accusations of terrorism um, because it's, it's seen as this existential threat and you don't want to be seen as uh, being on the side of the terrorists. Uh, and, and this is, you know, in some ways, one of the, the real powers of the global war on terror, that it, it's created this, you know, I think, unconscious self-censorship in people um, to not talk about something like that. Um, and, you know, there, of course, there's been, sure, a lot of scholars who've, who've written critical um, things about the global war on terror, but um, it's, it's been seen largely as an academic issue and not um, in the public domain. Uh, and then, you know, a similar experience I've had is over, while I was writing the book, um, I uh, served as an expert witness in Norway for a case um, where a Uyghur who had been in Syria was uh, arrested by the Norwegian government um, on terrorism charges. Uh, and it was a very interesting experience. I, I, I both testified at the original trial and then at the appeal trial. And um, it was very discouraging because my counterpart, who was um, basically a, a terrorism expert, had these very preconceived notions of what uh, constitute ter constitutes terrorism and what doesn't. Um, and I was trying to, to really question those things, but I found also that the court itself, you know, was much more caught in these um, classic ideas. It's, well, it's not what the person did. It's uh, about whether they had connections to a specific group and whether this specific group believes in Salafism, um, and that should constitute um, a terrorist, you know. So any, any, um, anybody who is involved in, in any sort of violence, uh, political violence, uh, who is inspired by Salafism is seen as a terrorist. Um, and, and, you know, I, I found it to be I, th I think one of the moments I got most flustered was the first court date. Um, the defense, or I guess, no, the prosecutor for the state um, 
accosted me and accused me of being um, sympathetic to the Uyghurs and that um, I could not be objective um, because of my sympathy for these people, which I found to be an absurd um, accusation. You know, as an anthropologist, um, I think that anthropologists believe that you you should have um, a strong sense of empathy with the people that you're studying um, and uh, being accused that, you know, just the fact that I lived with Uyghurs um, when I was doing field work, that that uh, should constitute a lack of objectivity, you know, was in, infuriating to me. Um, but, you know, I think that those are some of the things uh, that people face as, as an uphill battle if they're, if they're dealing with dominant narratives, um, and particularly one like the global war on terror, which has become so ingrained in our society. And as we approach our close here, in the conclusion, you address some important questions about the future tra trajectory of this tragedy. And I would especially like to ask about what we can do, whether as individuals, as ordinary people, or as decision makers, people with positions of power, to prevent this from escalating and worse. Yeah, you know, this is one of the most difficult um, uh, things to kind of formulate is how to deal with uh, a mass atrocity like this, you know, or um, something that essentially is um, a pending genocide. Uh, on the one hand, if we look historically, the international community has proven itself incapable of preventing genocides. Um uh, you know, I, I can't think of one that was uh, really prevented by international action. But I, I also don't think that means that um, people should stop trying. I think it's really important. And I think we live in a different world now um, where there are some ways to really um, push back and try to make um, the Chinese government change its behavior. Um, I don't think that's going to come from states alone. I think states can, can play a part in it. Um, but unfortunately, right now, we see the United States taking a lead role in pushing back on China. And the response from the Chinese government is that um, this is just the U.S. Um, worried about a rising China and uh, a, a declining American hegemony around the world. Um, and that's an appealing argument to a lot of people, particularly in, in the developing world. And the Chinese state will say, well, you know, the, the, this whole um, narrative about uh, cultural genocide um, in the Uyghur region is made up by the American government. And um, we're finding that uh, a lot of people um, who don't believe the, the U S government, uh, usually are, are very prone to that argument. Um, so right now with the Trump administration kind of taking the lead, I almost worry that that's, um, uh, going to backfire and that's, um, you know, only going to make it harder, um, to change China's behavior on this. One of the things that I talk about in my book and I've been 
talking about in in various um, venues is that I think it's really important to see a grassroots movement um, and a global grassroots movement that really uh, tries to hold the Chinese state accountable for what it's doing to Uyghurs. And I think that the main fulcrum for that is um, is related to con- consumer advocacy because uh, in the world right now, almost all consumer products, um, you know, are, or not all of them, but, you know, a, an incredible percentage of them are made in China and all of us are consuming Chinese products constantly. And what's, what we're seeing is um, that what the situation of the Uyghurs is becoming entangled in all of the supply chains of um, global brands around the world. So, for example, the majority of um, one second, the majority of uh, um, cotton uh, that we see being um, developed into clothing around the world, uh, a significant percentage of it is coming from the Uyghur region of China. Uh, a, a significant percentage of um, processed tomatoes in the United States comes from the Uyghur region of China. And through these uh, forced residential labor programs that Uyghurs are being subjected to, uh, we're seeing that uh, Uyghurs are are working um, on factories all over China uh, that are completely entangled in significant global supply chains. So uh, good research that can really point to the products um, that are being made and sold globally uh, that are entangled and complicit with what's happening to the Uyghurs. And, and, and on top of that, advocacy in terms of boycotting those products or divesting from the companies um, that are producing those products, I think could um, really have an impact. Um, now, of course, I think eventually we're going to have to also see uh, a lot of states that have not yet spoken up about what's happening to Uyghurs um, speak up about it. And, and this is in particular true of the Muslim world, which has been noticeably silent about what's happening to Uyghurs inside China. Thank you so much for this. Then as we close, uh, could you tell us about any current or future research that you're working on? No pressure. Uh, What are you working on now that we can look forward to reading in the near future, hopefully? Um, I actually uh, actually am working on a book that uh, builds on this concept of the self-fulfilling prophecy um, and is looking at... uh, the Uyghur example, as well as um, two other examples from Eurasia, uh, the Chechens uh, and the Uzbeks, who have, um, where we've seen uh, different forms of local um, political activism be uh, essentially um, uh, stopped or um, completely eliminated. Uh, and leading to uh, people joining militant uh, terrorist groups connected to, you know, global terrorist networks around the world. 
Um, so, you know, it, trying to look at the same uh, methodology I did in, in terms of examining the weed warp issue uh, and looking at it um, in the case of how we've, we've seen a proliferation of Chechens and Uzbeks involved in international terrorist networks as well. Um, and, and really, you know, trying to show how uh, the, the global war on terror has, has morphed uh, throughout the world where we have a variety of states using this discourse as a means to uh, suppress domestic dissent um, and that that is essentially fueling uh, the recruitment of terrorist organizations around the world. Um, so it, it's, it's, uh, it's a related project, but it's also comparative in nature um, because I, I want to make the point that I make in, in this book about the war on terror um, a little more um, forcefully by, by bringing out that this is not just an isolated case uh, in the case of the Uyghurs, but this is uh, a problem that um, is endemic to this whole concept of a global war on terror. And, and at the root of that problem is the fact that the international community refuses to come up with a consensus definition of, of what is terrorism. That sounds very important and relevant. I look forward to it. Thank you so much, John, for joining me today. And um, I look forward to your future research as well. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Okay, so that was my interview with Sean Roberts about his book, The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority, published with Princeton University Press in 2020. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again soon.